Okay. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. My name's Rob Adams. I'm the Director of City Design at the City of Melbourne, and it's my great privilege to be asked uh, by Naomi Milgram and uh, Robert Buckingham to come and uh, be one of the M Talks. Uh, M Talks are going to be a regular Tuesday evening occurrence. Uh, this is number three. And next week, uh, John, there will be a talk on John Truscott and uh, his contribution to Melbourne. I, I need to let you know that uh, we are being recorded, so if you want to ask a question, you mostly really best to get up and uh, go to the mic that's just uh, behind the column here, and uh, therefore we, we'll be able to hear you in, in the recorded uh, form. What a wonderful evening. This is uh, a wonderful building uh, put together by Sean Godsell. Uh, he calls it uh, a modern shed. Uh, it could be a modern gazebo. It could be a peristyle hall from Greece. Uh, but here we sit in uh, these fantastic gardens in this pavilion and going to have a conversation. And uh, I'm delighted that you've all come to join us. The conversation is about Melbourne, a design city. Why is that important? We're not Rio. We're not Cape Town, where I studied. Um, we're not um, Sydney. We don't have the fantastic, spectacular topography that defines many of those cities. We've had to consider our city. We've had to be careful about how we treat it. We've had to grow it to be the jewel it is today. And it's had its ups and its downs, um, and it's going through a period of transition at the moment. And uh, I think that's an exciting period, and uh, hopefully that'll be the subject of what we talk about. What's happening in cities in the world? Uh, the urban population of the globe is going to double, the, the urban population, in the next 40 to 50 years. So if you stop and think about that for a second, we're going to have to build the same urban capacity in 40 or 50 years that we've taken generations and centuries to build. Obviously not in, in the Australian context. That, to me, is a really exciting thing if we get it right and a really frightening thing if we get it wrong. So the nature and design of our cities is something that we should all be talking about. And what surprised me is how little our governments at the upper levels talk about cities. I'm lucky enough every year to go off to the World Economic Forum and I sit in the Globalisation Council. And I thought the easiest thing would be able to get cities into the discussion at Davos each year. Well, I'm going back for my fifth year uh, on Saturday and we still haven't got cities onto the agenda. They create 80% of the greenhouse gases, they drive our economies and they're the places that most of us live in. They are, in fact, the solution, if we get them right, to many of the challenges that face us over the next coming decades. So tonight we're going to talk a little bit about that. We've got a fantastic panel. We've got Eddie Giannini, who's at the end there, Eddie's a director and team leader at uh, McGoran Soon, a firm of architects. They're prize winning. Many of their, their works have been in affordable housing. In fact, in recent years, they've won a number of uh, awards for really good affordable housing. So, Eddie, delighted, delighted to have you here. Simon Spain is one of my heroes. Simon works with primary school chil children in exciting them about creative uh, projects. Um, he worked at a place called the Ark in, in, in Dublin, which is primarily set up to engage young primary school kids with the creative um, disciplines. 
to, to give creativity the status that we actually drop out of it at school. As a 16-year-old, I was told I had to take either biology or art. When I asked my parents which I'd take, they said biology. You'll get a better job. That devalues the creative part of our culture. And Simon is one of my heroes who builds that back into our children and actually makes them realize how important creativity is. Patrick Ness. Patrick uh, is a partner at Cox. Um, you will go past many of his uh, creations, uh, Amy Stadium, Jim Stein's Bridge, um, and you gave me a whole list, Patrick, and I'm going to forget them because I've basically taken too much for the hay fever tonight. But Patrick is one of our leading architects in Melbourne. And Bernard Salt. Uh, Bernard, you, you must really know uh, better than any of us because Bernard writes in the Australian um, uh, very frequently and is a, a demographer, works with KPMG, is a futurist, actually looks at our city and tries to predict where we're coming from, where we're going to, and, and is a well-known contributor to all of these. So that's our panel. And uh, what I'm going to do is just give them a few minutes to uh, say a few things, and then we'll ask a few questions. And I want to open it up as a discussion, uh, if we can, to the, to the wider floor. So um, I might open, uh, Ellie, uh, with yourself. Sure. Um, can everyone hear me? Um, okay. This is completely off the cuff. I'd prepared a PowerPoint, so... <laughs> How silly was that? <laughs> For an architect not to uh, understand where they were going to prepare. <laughs> They're going to, um, you know, give this their uh, presentation. Anyway, um, what I'm going to say is I came here as a teenager um, to Melbourne on a cold September day in 1971. And you, could, you can sort of imagine... Um, uh, the boat arriving at Princess Pier and it's grey, it's, wind, it's windy and the, the skyline of the city looked very different from the way it does today. It was um, maybe a couple of tall buildings. It just didn't look like very much at all. Um, we disembark and we're taken to Altona. So um, I come from Rome. So... It was kind of a big shock um, and it took a long time to kind of um, orient myself and, um, and sort of come to love the place that I live in, which is Melbourne. But one of the things that really impressed us was um, a few days later, of course, you know, Melbourne being the way it is, the changeable weather um, turned for the better. And we walked from Flinders Street Station all the way down the river to South to Grange Road to South, uh, uh, yeah to to the Grange Road Bridge to um, South Yarra Turek down there. And we just you know our first impression of Melbourne as a grey, cold, not very attractive place completely was turned on its head. It was sunny, beautiful. It was this lovely um, city across the river. The parks were gorgeous, green spaces, the botanical gardens. Um, and today I had the opportunity to do that in reverse. I, I parked my car um, near the boat sheds along the river and I walked back to this, to this thing. And I was thinking, well, I don't know who put the boat sheds there, but the boat sheds are a fantastic thing. You know, they're a, they're a place where people 
um, actually have something to do. They provide a spectacle for everyone else. They provide a, 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 an activity for the kids and the adults that go rowing. Um, it's kind of an accident, but a very happy accident. And to me, cities are full of those happy accidents. I mean, Rome is a, an, a magnificent place. I've just, I've just come back from a holiday there. I spent 10 days. Um, and everywhere you turn, um, your eye goes to a Doric column next to a, a bit of medieval castellated wall and next to a Baroque, you know, windowsill. And, um, and those accidents uh, are planned but are also let, you know, someone's letting them, letting them be. So it's a very kind of, um, designing a city is a very tricky business. It's, it's one where you have to have a, a strong vision and a, and a big vision, but you also have to let all the things that, are, that a big city like Melbourne can offer, and you, you've got to let those things kind of happen. In a way, I'm, I'm also a little bit, um, normally not um, uh, not scared of words such as design, but um, calling, you know, kind of calling it, you know, Melbourne Design City, I kind of, you know, I'm a bit superstitious. I sort of don't want anyone to know about that <laughs> because it's like um, there are so many things in Melbourne that I see that aren't anywhere else. You know, there's Funaki in Crossley Lane. There's, there's, there's... Uh, lots of arts and 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 um, you know there's the lanes that are that are um, full of street art and all, all sorts of things that other other cities try to control or not happen or um, um, and in a way it's kind of like it's nice to keep it secret it's nice to keep those things kind of bubbling along and hoping that new um, you know a friend of mine who's here tonight uh, said you know it's like your parents. Uh, saying, oh, that's a great song you're playing. Well, you're never going to play it again, you know, <laughs> if you're a teenager. So it's, it's, it's a very delicate uh, business. We had the um, fortune to... We, we have the fortune to work, you know, our, our office, to work with complex projects, often um, uh, renovations and um, refurbishments, re... re uh, rethinking of, of old buildings. We, had, we, we worked on a project with, with Rob um, uh, for the redevelopment of the Drill Hall, which, which is now providing a community facility for the northern part of Melbourne along Victoria Street. And that, um, that was a project that it was a very complex project. It was an old um, army drill hall and um, it, had, it kind of become sort of over the years, it had sort of fallen into slightly less use, and you know, um, so Rob had the brilliant idea to partner with a with um, a housing association to uh, to kind of kickstart a, a kickstart a new use for this hall. Um, we built a seven-story um, building that now houses uh, 50, 60, 50 to six. Um, um, uh, residents um, on low income and they use the facilities of the hall which are then um, adjacent to more, um, uh, more, more community facilities that Melbourne City Council has, has in that location. It's near the market. It's, it's, um, 
you know, it's, it's the right sort of project. It's the kind of project that I hope um, we look to, uh, you know, promote and stimulate in, in all sorts of other places, in all sorts of other sp uh, spaces in the city. Because um, a city, to me, it's about um, the inhabitants, uh, it's about attracting um, uh, people from all sorts of uh, walks of life, all, all, um, all social and demographic um, provenance. Um, and, um, and it's that way that we keep a city kind of energetic and new and, um, and interesting and without Thank calling it a design city. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Simon. <laughs> Simon, a few words. Oh, yeah. Um, I think I'm the only non-architect sitting here tonight. So, um, but strangely, I'm just <laughs> finding myself about to go. Oh no, architect, not, not trained, <laughs> not trained. Up. Good. Okay. Um, strangely, about to find myself potentially going a PhD in an architecture school, which is a an odd one. Um, but um, look, I've spent my career basically about the people inside the buildings, not the buildings themselves, designing them. Um, and my passion is about supporting, particularly children and families' creativity in buildings. Um, and as Rob said, there are two places particular to me. One is I came from Dublin, uh, a building called the Ark. And that building was uh, Europe's first specifically designed cultural arts center for children um, up to the age of about um, 12. And kids would come there and work with professional artists. That's a very important part of this too. And so about 10 years ago, we opened Art Play, the city of Melbourne, which is just over in Birung there, which does exactly the same thing. We have children and families coming through that space and um, making, working with artists. And um, there's some important lessons, I suppose, that I, as a non-architect, I think I, w we were talking about this earlier, but in a sense, whenever you do anything, you design a space, whether it be this space here tonight, we design the way this sits. But we're constantly doing that to optimize the kind of quality of experience for the children and the families that we work with. We design the spaces very carefully within. But the building itself, um, what's interesting is we did a, a big research program with the University of Melbourne over five years, and a couple of the things um, have come out of that, which are going to be so patently obvious, in a sense, <laughs> that you need to do that research for. But one is that a creative space for us is a space with very little in it. We're actually in one right now, really. It's a space where we have a little tagline that it's where your imagination can come out to play. Um, it's something, in our building, there's really very little lockdown. It's an open, empty space. And I often talk about, um, Goethe talks about, in order to be creative, you need to be in a state of openness. And that idea of being open and having an open space is very important for us to foster creativity. The next thing we've learned really about the space is the dynamism of the space. You talk about that changing space. People come back and find the thing looks different. Now, not only can we manipulate the space, but they can manipulate their spaces too and change the space so that they feel comfortable. So I think giving users of the buildings power and potential to change the way that they can interact with the space has certainly proved very successful with us over the last few years. Um, and so what we've done is a place really, what we have is a place for um, learning and sharing. And um, what Art Play, I think, does almost more than anything else is it fosters an idea of empathy 
with other people and other people's views because it's a very democratic space. What we've got is somewhere where people can come, make things, do things. And I think, you know, we could talk about this, but they could be equally a park or a wherever. But it's somewhere where people feel um, safe, secure to make mistakes and um, uh, safe in other ways for children as well, that it's somewhere they're not going to um, uh, have a, an accident or something, but also the ability to take risks. Because I think what we do with our artists, and I think as architects, designers, um, obviously taking risks is an incredibly important way of making new things. So I think we uh, build a space where you can uh, manipulate the space, you can take risks. And for us, uh, working with kids, one of the most important words, which is so often left out, is we can play. And it's not... Uh, I, I the person here came up with the idea of art play, I know, and um, it was such a good title for us because play is such a critical thing that we kind of forget how to do quite a lot of. Um, and that idea of going in and not knowing where you're going, not knowing where the drawing is going to finish, that seems a really critical thing to foster. And I think you can do that in the nature of the spaces. If they're open-ended, um, wide spaces with um, things you can manipulate inside them, you are really empowering people to be uh, creative themselves. Um, so I kind of think of uh, art play um, as a model for things that could be all over the city. Um, and, and somebody once described it to me as a civic studio. And I like that idea of a civic studio because it needn't only be for kids. We could have places where adults all people come together and just be creative and make stuff together. And it's a bit of a um, push against new technologies in a way as well, this, because what the other thing we have found is people actually want to come together and do stuff in spaces. And, and a quick story to finish. I remember working with some teenagers once and we were folding up some books or something in art play and we were about eight of us around a table and one of the kids said to me, this is a sort of offline collaboration, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, well, this is, this is what we do. This is about working together. <laughs> I think that's a very nice description of actually uh, a space that can be nothing to do with being online, but actually about connection. Thank you. And, and we'll come back to that idea of democratic space, because um, part of what cities are about are the spaces between buildings as well. And the most democratic space is the street. And I'll come back to that because leave you with a thought, design a good street, you design a good city. Patrick. Yeah. Th thanks, Rob. Well, I, I was born in Hong Kong and grew up there, and one would argue that it's perhaps one of the most densely populated cities in the world, and it probably had very little design, yet incredible energy. And it taught me as a child, how far do you take design before you sterilise something, and what do human beings naturally do, given the opportunity? I just want to talk very quickly about is there a role, what is the role of design in, in reshaping cities? What, what, what actually happens and what does it mean? And in order to talk about that, I suppose one needs to think about why do we reshape our cities? What's the point of doing that? And I think for me there's, there's two key reasons. One, it gives us an opportunity to, to have what I describe as typological evolution. We take libraries and schools and housing and workplace and we refit them to suit the society in which we live. If we didn't do that, we'd be in nostalgia all the time. So reshaping cities allows us to update things and make them relevant to all of us here. We're not the same population we were 100 years ago. So that's one reason we do it, we reshape cities. 
The other reason I think we do it is to, is to actually engage and promote public life. And by that I mean, as John Armstrong from Melbourne Uni would talk about, we, we engage in public life because we want a civil society. What we're doing tonight is we're exchanging our civil contracts with each other. It's what makes healthy societies. And Rob's quite right, in, in buildings and design, there's only three conditions, inside, outside, and in between. Inside is primarily public enterprise. Outside is, 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 outside is public. And it's that in-between space, which is really where our cities are most challenged, how we get the maximum out of that. So typological evolution and public life. And what design does is design manifests those things. It's this beautiful interplay between production, construction, environment, and culture. So it's the physical outcome of reshaping our cities. And it requires some very simple things. It requires metaphor, insight, and ultimately requires ideas to do it really, really well. And I think, for me, cities survive because they're filled with ideas. So in Melbourne, when we reshape things, it's not because we want icons and bright, shining lies. We do it because we want a civil society and we do it because it says to all of us there's ideas going on here and we'll be okay. I'm not interested at all in what really essentially happens in what I'd call star architects doing big icons. They're like, to me, rubber bones to starving dogs. I'm interested in the street, as Rob talks about, and that in between the street and the buildings, which is where the really interesting stuff happens. That's where we as generations learn how to get on with each other or to ignore each other. And that's really our real challenge. And right now in Melbourne, I'll, I'll finish up on this, we're facing a really interesting time. You know, a million people increase in the last 10 or 12 years. Um, we're talking about a huge population growth. And where are they all going to go? And right now, we've really got a lot of offshore money coming into Melbourne and building new buildings. There's no ideas in that. There's a spreadsheet, there's a balance sheet, but there's not the same skin in the game about what happens at the street and that interface. So we've got some real challenges coming, but um, there's a lot of positives too, so I'm sure we'll talk about that in the <laughs> question time. Thanks, Patrick. Bernard. Well, I'm going to start uh, with Melbourne uh, at the very beginning. Um, I think, I think um, design, art, architecture, style has always been part of Melbourne's shtick, if you like, since the gold era. Uh, in the 1880s, Melbourne was known as the Paris of the Antipodes, the Chicago of the South, and rightly so. Magnificently designed, I think better designed than any other city on the Australian continent of, uh, of some scale, laid out by Hoddle, of course. Uh, so you have the design of the city, the magnificent boulevard, St Kilda Road. There is no boulevard in any other city that can compare with the scale, the gravitas, if you like, of St Kilda Road. But it doesn't stop there. It's North Fitzroy. It's, um, it's um, St Vincent Place. It's East Melbourne. The arrondissements of central Melbourne were laid down over 100 years ago. And then through demographic addition, if you like, half a million people at Federation, when Melbourne was effectively the, the centre point of Australia. The Prime Minister lived here at number one Collins Street for 25 years or so. Um, and then, of course, um, art and architecture flourished here in Melbourne, again, tapping into that sense of design. Uh, the Heidelberg School came out of Melbourne. Heidi came out of Melbourne. Sidney Nolan painted the Kelly series on a kitchen table out at Bulleen. It came out of Melbourne. It did not come out of Sydney. RMIT 
technical skills came out of Melbourne, connected ultimately, I think, to gold. Melbourne and Melburnians are a city of, of designers, if you like, in an artistic sense, in a practical sense. Sydney has always been a trading city, a money city, a city that holds the Reserve Bank, the Commonwealth Bank, Macquarie Bank, Westpac Bank, traders, if you like. We are designers, we are planners, we are doers, if you like, manufacturers, producers, uh, and we have the critical mass to actually have an impact at a, certainly a national and international level. Melbourne is now a city of four and a half million people. Um, and we are now growing at a rate of about 95,000 people per year. In the 1990s, it was barely 35,000 people per year. The extra 100,000 or so per year being added to the outer suburbs, like Point Cook or up north or down in the south uh, southeast, and also into the city centre. Within a 5k radius of the GPO, there are 285,000 people in Melbourne. That number is increasing at a rate of 16,000 people per year. We are investing demographically, culturally, into the heartland of, uh, of Melbourne. Um, I'm actually seeing what evolve two Melbournes, two cities, and I think that is being replicated in other major cities in Australia. There's the suburban Melbourne, the three-quarter acre, three-quarter, three-bedroom brick veneer house on a quarter-acre block Melbourne. We invented the quarter-acre block. Uh, we invented neighbours, Kath and Kim, the Sullivans, if you like. We parodied suburbia. We were proud of suburbia. And that prevailed for the second half of the 20th century. But in the 21st century, our values are shifting out with suburbia, in with apartmentia, where we can actually uh, embrace all of the culture, all of the accoutrement, all of the infrastructure of central Melbourne. I think we're seeing global uh, knowledge workers um, aggregate in the centre of Melbourne. And you've almost got these two cities, global knowledge workers, connected into the design elements of central Melbourne and suburban Melbourne. I think the same thing is happening in Sydney, the same thing is happening in Brisbane as well. So I'm very excited about Melbourne's transition from a flat suburban city, if you like, to actually re-embrace the, the culture, the accoutrement, the infrastructure of the central city with a new generation of global workers that we've even given a tribal name. They're called hipsters. Who had heard of hipsters? Uh, three or four years ago. And even our culinary tastes have changed. Cafes, bars, restaurants. Who had heard of quinoa uh, three or four years ago? And Melburnians embrace it, celebrate it as part of our new culture, if you like. We're seeing a more sophisticated, global Melbourne emerge in the centre of our city. And it's a city to be proud of. It's a city that will grow from 4.5 million people to 7.5 million people by 2050. 100,000 people per year for 36 years is 3.5 million people. Uh, we need to start thinking about how we're going to manage a city with the same population of Paris in twice the area of Paris. That, that I think, throws up a really interesting conundrum. I mean, if you, if you look at the work that Griffiths University has done, and they, they call it the vampire study, vulnerability to mortgage and petrol prices, and they've done it for every capital city in Australia, and it clearly shows what Bernard just actually articulated to you, that we have now divided our cities into two. Those people in the inner city that have access to just about everything, don't need to actually own a car anymore, um, can use the public transport, can walk, can now cycle. We've gone from 1% of the people in 2001 to 13% of the people in, in uh, 2014 cycling into the city. 
So our city is going through a change that we've never seen before, but we, we're getting the haves and the have-nots, and I grew up in a divided city. Um, and what worries me is if we persist with some of the design controls and planning laws we've got at the moment, we're actually enshrining that division. The, every time we take another broad acre lot of land on the fringe and decide that that's where people are going to live, we actually deepen that divide between the, the inside and the outside. How does that play out? I, I most certainly agree. I think that um, if you think in a big picture sense, how do you add three million people to a city like Melbourne? Do you go from Pakenham to Druin and on to Warrigal and on to Maui? Uh, it just it isn't workable. One thing you can say about Melbourne and, and Australia over the next 50 years is that the price of petrol will go from $1.30 to maybe $5 a litre. What happens to Melbourne when petrol is 5 or $10 a litre? The whole logic of the city breaks down. You cannot commute from Cranbourne into the city centre. Well, there is a way to actually address this, I think, and that is to decentralise the jobs out of central Melbourne and seed them around the metropolitan area. Yes, you can live in Cranbourne and cycle to uh, Dandenong, if you like, but it involves a bold step. You've got to take the cultural institutions, the corporate institutions, out of the city centre and seed them around the metropolitan area. In the UK, the BBC, with 23,000 workers, was recently asked to take 10% of their jobs and put them in Salford in Manchester. It was for political reasons, to be in, in, embrace the regions, if you like. And we have done it, sort of, with the TAC going to Geelong. I'm saying don't necessarily send them to Geelong. Uh, set up government departments, and the corporate sector will follow, to places like Footscray, or to Broadmeadows, or to Ringwood, or to Dandenong, so that people live, work, play, recreate, go to university, go to hospital, all within a local area, if you like. I call it the mosaic city. That, to me, reduces our carbon footprint, improves the quality of life, but it involves taking the crown jewels out of Melbourne and placing them strategically around the metropolitan area. It's a bold step. Uh, Eddie, uh, you... Yeah, I was going to sort of follow up from that. I think there's a really great opportunity in Melbourne with um, campuses, university campuses, because we have so many campuses which are already in, you know, far-flung places. You know, the, the uh, Monash University's got a, uh, a campus in Berwick. Um, uh, and and those, those sorts of... And, and lots of um, universities have got those campuses spread out in in um, uh, in suburbia already, um, and they have the potential to be uh, a kind of nu nucleus of cultural activity and and start off that you know kickstart that kind of thing that you're talking about. Just, I, don't, no, I, I, I want to ask Patrick a question here because um, I've heard time and time again we'll move the jobs out to where the people are. We're in a city that's actually radial. Everything concentrates on the centre. How successful is, is that likely to be? I'm interested, interested in Bernard's comment about decentralising because I think there's the other side to that which is really about the benefits of co-locating. There's a frisson between groups that are together that generate energy and outcomes that, you know, simplistically you can move major headquarters out and, and begin somehow, I think, without all the other elements around them, they can wither on the vine. You know, I think the discussion in Melbourne is a really interesting one because there's, you know, there's, we really have three types of suburbs. We've got post-settlement, which were the walkable suburbs, the Fitzroy's and the Carlton's and 
we can argue they're growing good and bad. We've got we've got um, literally what happened post-war or pr just pre-war, where train infrastructure led the development of these areas. And these are the areas, the Hawthorns and other places, where we've got a lot of amenity and a lot of infrastructure, but they're not dense enough yet. And then we've got post-war, which is all based on car. And we don't need any more of those. They're the ones that I think we've really got to tie back. So I'm not sure whether the answer is, I think it's a great, interesting topic. Do we decentralise or do we actually densify and provide connections back in? The problem with some of our mid-level suburbs right now in the Ebenezer Howard sense is they're neither urban nor rural. They're not giving you any of the urban benefits, but they're not green enough really to have a productive landscape. So I think there's some other ways of looking at the same problem. Uh, well, I certainly, think, I certainly think that we do need to densify. Uh, and I would densify along the tramway routes, along the railway lines, if you like. So Box Hill is a classic example of that. Have a look at what happened in Sydney. 1972, the Department of Youth, Sport and Recreation went from George Street to Parramatta. Two years later, 1974, the ATO set up its first non-CBD regional office in Parramatta. There's now Parramatta, there's Chatswood uh, and, and others, if you like. So I'm not suggesting moving out to the edge of town, but to those middle distant suburbs that are well connected. If you actually built up Footscray to a major Parramatta-esque type um, facility, you would obviate the need for a second crossing of the Yarra. What do you think it would cost to create another Westgate Bridge? 10 billion, 20 billion? If we started today, when would it be operational? 10 years time? Have you looked at the Westgate Bridge at six o'clock on a weekday morning? when you come up from Geelong, it's Los Angelian in its proportions. Melbourne is a city that is in danger of collapsing under its own weight. Now, part of it is infrastructure, roads and railways. Yeah, I get that. It costs a lot of money. <coughs> or we can decentralise. The, the cost of the regional rail link from Werribee to Southern Cross, 47 kilometres, is $5,000 million. It's $100 million per kilometre. We just don't have that sort of money. People aren't prepared to pay that amount of tax. We another, another solution is decentralisation. These regional centres build up Footscray, build up Broadmeadows, Box Hill, Moorabbin perhaps. I think it's an interesting thing. And Ellie re re referred to the campus, and I'm going to come back to that because the cost of infrastructure. Let me tell you a small story. Uh, when I was very much younger in 1969, I was at Cape Town University, and all of the baby boomers were arriving at the university. What every university was doing was expanding. Cape Town stuck on the side of Table Mountain couldn't expand. So what they did is they said, how well are we using the stuff we've already got? And lecture theatres, for instance, were being used for 17.5% of the time. So they said, well, why didn't we re-timetable? I went back 30, 30 years later. They had taken the student population from 5,000 to 15,000 on that campus. They'd built very little stuff. But the campus was now alive from 8 in the morning to late at night. They'd re-timetable. Part of the challenge that I think Bernard's referring to is how do we re-timetable our city? When you give people free train trips before 7 o'clock, the 2,600 people that jumped on that train saved this government $85 million. They would have had to buy five trains, and they forewent $15 million in fees. So we've got to do less with more. And if you take the city, the metropolitan city, and you actually put people along tram routes and redevelopment sites and things like that. You only have to use up 7.5% of the land. You don't have to touch suburbia. And you will save $440 billion in infrastructure. 
There's an exciting challenge. What could we do with $440 billion in terms of the schools we're going to need in the inner city and the rest of it? So I think this idea of repurposing the city, which uh, you know Patrick was talking about, is a really important part. Simon, I'm going to flick to you. We, if we do this, the, the common criticism is, and I got it the other day, we were doing an interview on Catalyst, that all this density is bad for our health, mm. bad, for, bad for children, mm. there's no place to play. Mm. How, do we, how do we counter that myth? Well, there is a, the, the backyards in Australia are going, getting smaller, as we know, and we work. How do we manage that? Well, I don't know. Um, what, I was gonna, what I was thinking about in that question is about the small intimate spaces. That's what yeah. seems very important for children. Um, and families, places where you can interact and, and work on a small scale. Kids are tiny. Kids are small. They need places that are safe and yeah. secure. Um, and uh, yeah, the back, um, Australian backyards are getting smaller because the houses are getting bigger. And we find that we sometimes are doing things in our workshops which are so kind of obvious. <laughs> it's empty cardboard box things where. Uh, Kids are picking things up off the ground and pressing them into clay and making really simple things. People go, is that all you do? And so, yeah, well, people aren't doing that anymore. <laughs> you know, there is a loss of that. And I think there's a danger in that real densifying spaces that you do lose. You've got to retain it, basically. Sure. There has to be some opportunities sure. to retain. Certainly, I like the idea within campuses of having multiple, multi-purpose spaces yeah. for children and families sure. to, you know, engage. I'm going to most probably uh, start to open it up for people who want to ask questions because I'd like to get some of your I uh, ideas. There is a microphone uh, right here. Is there anybody who would like to ask a question? Right until someone becomes brave enough to ask a question. One of the things that um, we, we're talking about as we see Melbourne change is an economic uh, uh, priority. And uh, we've heard the statement that um, you know a lot of these buildings that have been going up are good for workers, good for jobs. Uh, yet we see a lot of them actually not being built. Uh, you know, securing a permit, securing the value, and selling on. So there's no jobs in that, and there's no public benefit that comes back. Are, is good design uh, hampered by economics? Um, you know, how do how do we get the the balance between what we think is economically necessary, and are we defining economics in the right way? Uh, what does the economics of the city look like? It might be broader than just the dollars in the bank. I th I think economics are a, a fundamental part of it, and to ignore it or them is indulgent. I, I think it's just what we do, and I think what we do in Australia or have done really well is we tend to do more with less. And what we're seeing now is a slight difference in that. We're, we're, we're awash with things. We can get anything we want anytime, anywhere. We've got buildings going up where people are fronting lifestyles. You know, you, your kitchen's made of marble and stainless steel and you live in an image. And that's not the Australia that I particularly am interested in or like. And I, and I think the economics of that have really been we're, we're, we're obsessed with land ownership. We're obsessed with having a plot of land. I mean, I, again, I grew up in Hong Kong. We didn't have a garden, but we had access to community spaces and things. I think the problem with the economics at the moment is people are parking their international money in the world's most livable city, and it's, we're not getting traction from that. We're just getting it parked there. And we're getting buildings going up that I really think are unremarkable at the best, and at worst will change the idea of what 
our public city is about. And that is just economics as only one, because it's missing the others. It's missing culture, it's missing production, and it's missing the story that goes with it. Yeah. So don't blame the economics, it's just missing the other three. <laughs> I sort of do blame the economics in a way because it seems <laughs> that, of course, cities are uh, uh, com centres of commerce. I mean, that's how they are. You know, they can't have a s one goes with the other. But um, to prioritise that above everything else, that's why I'm, I'm, you know, again, I go into that cultural thing. We have to, you know, if there isn't a reason, a cultural reason or a cultural, a strong, our culture needs to remain strong or to stay strong and grow strong. Because if we don't have that, then all we've got is a spreadsheet that we were talking about before. Mm. And the, the results of the spreadsheet is all too obvious in places like Little Lonsdale Street and those canyons of, you know, buildings that really are, are very poor. And, um, and I think they'll stay poor. And what worries me is that, um, it, because I've lived in, you know, as you have, I mean, not as dense, Rome is not as dense as Hong Kong, obviously, but, you know, I lived all my childhood in an apartment. And living, uh, I caution people who do buy in large apartment buildings because negotiating with 200 and sometimes more um, other residents is not the easiest thing in the world, you know. <laughs> and I want to see what happens when these things start to sort of start to need a bit of maintenance, you know. Sure, sure. <laughs> Naomi? It's okay, I think they'll all fall down by then. <laughs> um, I think all of the ideas that you've raised are wonderful ideas and 2050 in Melbourne could be a wonderful, wonderful place of humanity, culture, the arts and everything else and gardens as well. How do we convince government that that's the right way to go? Because, Patrick, you mentioned international money coming in, et cetera, et cetera. You've all raised issues around the negatives. How do we get positive about this and change things for the better? I, I, it's a massive question and I, I wish I had the, had the ability to answer that fully, but I think it's not about having opposing views. I mean, I, I, I think we have to Robin Hood the situation. We have to develop the language and the skill and the stealth and rat cunning to start to take the debate funnel things and start to do positive things with it. You know, I don't think there are things that movements and, and broad cultures exist. Individuals drive and individuals can make incredible good happen. And I think for us, I, I think there's, for me, I think focusing on big picture stuff about what is Victoria, what is Melbourne, what is Australia, what are our long-term futures, is it food production, what is it? And to start to invent the new industries and the new means of, of cultural industries too that are relevant as we go forward. My great fear is we're generating a lifestyle here. We've read all this, people will be selling each other lattes and doing all of that and we'll have population increases. But the thing we have to do is focus on what are the drivers, how do we manipulate them as best we can, but with good heart and good head at the same time. And not to, I, I partly agree with Ellie, I think culture is critical to it, but culture and money and environment and production, you, you've got to have all four running, otherwise we're being elite. And an elite discussion is a, is a, is a diminishing discussion in my mm -hmm. view. Bernard? Um, well, the, the way you get politicians to do anything is um, to understand the, the, the democratic process. Uh, politicians will only take short-term decisions if they're on a knife edge. Uh, and so if uh, they think they're going to lose office, uh, then they will put into practice whatever is, whatever is popular. 
uh, and yet planning for a city of seven million requires vision, guts, determination, commitment. I'm sorry, but you have to piss off people to make the right decisions. And if you're on a knife edge, you don't have the capacity to piss off people. It's called political capital. So what we can do as Melburnians is actually be galvanised to be sure about our direction. And that doesn't mean all jumping one way or another. It means having an open and ongoing conversation so that Melburnians, there is a community of view, a community spirit, if you like, where we know where we're going. I speak around Australia every week, and I can tell you there is a difference between going to a town that is galvanised about where it's going and a, ca and a town that is divided. And I think Melbourne's in danger of being divided. Go to Dubbo. Okay, it's Dubbo. It's 40,000 people. I reckon there are 40,000 Dubbonians all pushing in the same direction. If you were the mayor, if you were elected representative of those people, you know what to do to make them happy. But if there are 20,000 thinking this way, 20,000 thinking that way, you won't do anything. And I've seen towns where the politicians say to me, well, I can't, I can't do anything. If I do that, I'm dead. If I do that, I'm dead. What Melburnians can do is have an ongoing and open conversation that addresses big and difficult questions about the future. Four million people to seven million people, we're probably going to need more water reserves. We may well need a second airport. We may well need power generation. Big, difficult, politically unpalatable discussions for any politician. We need to have that discussion and galvanise the community about what sort of city was going to look like in 2050. Sorry, Simon, just... Oh, just to add, um, we are talking about the future, so I fully believe these decisions are made by people who feel they own the city and really belong in the city. Yeah. And again, I think about bringing children and young people up to the agenda in, in that. Um, they're the ones who are going to be making these decisions. They're the ones who are going to be bold and brave and uh, feel confident. And I think for that reason, they need to be very present in the city and um, feel they own the city and feel they can make decisions about it and feel it's theirs. Yep. Because otherwise, we are, I don't know who we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> We've got another question. Great. Thanks, Rob. Speaking of being bold and brave and confident, I have been to so many of these scenes and never spoken. So forgive me if I seem nervous on a microphone. I'm normally behind the scenes. Rob will know that. Um, I'm asking this in the context of what Bernard was saying about a, a, a conversation for Melbourne and ongoing, and also in the context of Rob saying he's off to Davos. And I, if I wasn't here, I'd be at a friend, Jane Hunt's farewell, who's going to speak at Davos in relation to social enterprise. She has a fantastic organisation fitted for work. Um, and then Ellie spoke about, you know, keep our light under the bushel because it's so bright and beautiful, we, we don't want to share it. So um, how, do we, how do we take what you're learning, Rob, and, and, and what you're all talking about, which, is, I mean, it's just blowing my mind this evening, um, to actually do something with that? Like, do we focus on Melbourne because there's so many challenges there, or do we take what we've learnt and and share our knowledge, or do we try to do both and risk doing neither well? Can I try and answer that, but I'll, I'll flick to the panel. Um, I suppose one of my frustrations um, is looking at why we've got this lack of momentum in government. It comes down, I think, to two things. One is the way we've structured our society, and, and when you go to the World Economic Forum, there will be 56 councils, all with worthy objectives. We happen to be on urbanisation, there'll be climate change, there'll be 
poverty, there'll be food scarcity, there'll be all of those. If you try and have 56 debates, uh, you mostly won't come to any important decisions about which you push forward. And one of my frustrations is to say, you know, all of those 56 debates can only take place in two places. They can either take place in an urban setting or in a rural setting. So if we started by saying, what context are we having this debate in? And if we're having it in the urban context, and then someone says climate change, instead of getting that dull thud in the back of your head that drives you to another glass of red, you basically say, in the urban context, I can solve climate change. I can have an urban forest strategy. I can have a city as a catchment. I can actually you know, use public transport. I can use a bike. I can do a whole lot of things. So I think structurally we've set up our society in a way that makes it difficult for us to take on these big challenges. So when the federal government, and, and Joe, Joe Hockey said this in a recent thing that I was in, when I said, gave the stats on cities, he said, it's not our jurisdiction. Well, if 80% of what happens to the economy of this country is not in the federal treasurer's jurisdiction, what the hell is? So the question is, where's the minister for cities? Who's pulling this together? Who's actually the choreographer that actually makes this happen? That's the first point I'll make. The second point I'll make is we've de-skilled government. Governments used to be where you'd have highly skilled people who worked over long periods of their career to actually build, design, and, and, and carry the corporate knowledge of the city. We've replaced those with risk managers, and we've, we've said the rest we'll buy in as consultancies. Now, I'm lucky enough to have stumbled into a job where, you know, I, I thought I was in private enterprise and then I found local government and, and, and suddenly I find myself where they've given that freedom to actually create from within. And what I bemoan is that it's so infrequent that that occurs. Where we've got to reskill government, not to do all the work, but to be an intelligent client. And right now, government is not an intelligent client. And there's a fundamental problem. I'll exclude from that, to a certain extent, local government, where I think local governments, and there's a book out, you know, should mayors lead the world, and ironically, we're getting close to that. They are making the, the serious decisions about the way we go forward. So that, that's the sort of response I can have to that, and all of that is achievable, but the panel might have some other views. It's tempting to say, you know, let's, let's get planning and design out of politics, because... You know, it seems that a lot of the time, because of this short-term um, cycle that we that we have, the, the, there is no bigger picture that can be uh, worked towards because, you know, we're always stuck with this short-term solution that someone needs to find, you know, something to announce tomorrow. So, um, and I agree totally with, with, with what you said, Rob. Uh, we have to have people within the bureaucracies at all government levels who have who lead these yeah. visions. But we also have to have a conversation that is a genuine conversation with the community, not one that ends up this kind of I mean, you know, the the the, the, the failure, for example, of trying to densify densify the city, the suburbs through um, dual occupancy, that all fell apart um, in some ways um, because of you know, people weren't prepared for what was going to happen. People weren't prepared for next door uh, having a two-storey addition or another. You know, it, 
there are so movements and counter movements. Yeah. We have to have a big conversation that takes into account those things before we impose them on people. Sure. <laughs> sure. We've got another question. Um, I'm Hannah Schwartz. I'm from an organisation called 3000 Acres. We work with various public and private landowners um, to transform vacant and underutilised land into urban agriculture. So my particular interest um, is around the place of food and food security in the cities. And I was just interested in the opinions of the people on the panel <laughs> and the place of food in these densifying or decentralising but whatever happens growing cities, um, and in particular in Melbourne? Yep. Well, I, um, I think it's a wonderful question. I recently, or we recently, sold in Melbourne and moved down onto a farm and to produce food. And no, I'm not a doomsday prepper. It's all about, um, it's all about turning around and- Ask him about his back. Yeah, the, the, back, <laughs> the back, I'm just learning how to drive a tractor. But um, the, the thing about food ultimately is it's, again, one of the, the, the greatest assets we have. It's one of the great civilizing tools we have. Food tells us a lot about the society we live in, our health and well-being. Everything's connected to it. And yet we regard it as something that we simply just consume and sits off there in the background. And so what you're, what you're doing right now is, one of I think, one of the great things of bringing into the urban environment that idea of not just food production but the social components that go with that, that show me people that grow food and share it at a table and I'll show you a really healthy society. Yeah. It's not something we do yeah. because we go to a restaurant and move in. It's a, it's a massive underpinning foundation to, to how we will evolve and survive. And I wish more of us had a much healthier relationship both to the production of food and what we're consuming. And we are consumers. We pop into a supermarket in seconds and eat refined yeah. foods like it's going out of style. You know? And some of those need th things need to change. Simon. Yeah, look, I think uh, I'm just going back, I'm going to answer that question, we'll go back to the first one as well, about what can we do. Um, call it idealistic, but I, I'm not sure whether architecture reflects our culture or drives it, probably a bit of both, but mm. the thing about our culture is surely the values in our culture mm. seems to me the most important thing. You know, those values of democracy and uh, the key things of tolerance and all of that. If, our, if the architecture that we build uh, mitigates against that and becomes inhuman, and doesn't allow spaces for growing vegetables, and doesn't allow that, then we're failing. Mm -hmm. We have to surely hold that, hold, it's us as a people, as a values, we have to hold those um, and make sure that our architecture reflects that. Sure. Um, because that's, that's what we're about, that's our humanness. Interesting to see Singapore and the, the way they're greening a lot of their yeah. buildings. Yeah. Mm. Um, well, I, I think it's a wonderful organisation. I, hadn't, I wasn't aware of it, so congratulations. I think um, Australian cities are extraordinarily uh, inefficient. Melbourne is 100 kilometres from Werribee through to Pakenham. Uh, London, I think, inside the N25 is 60 kilometres across and it's 8 million people. We are 4 million in roughly twice the space. So there's got to be space that can be better utilised. But I think this is connected into the first question about how, what is the forum about uh, managing this in the future. I would like to see uh, the state government, perhaps in concert with the Melbourne City Council, sponsor something like a festival of future Melbourne. We have festivals of dangerous ideas or whatever. How about a festival or a, um, a, a regular forum where people, academics, um, uh, business people, green groups, uh, public transport uh, advocates can all put their views as to uh, the best way to manage Melbourne going forward. The problem is I don't see any forum for it. 
So something happens, like the East-West Tunnel and there's a flashpoint. Mm. If there is a regular forum for discussion mm. over years, you would galvanise opinion, mm. better education as to how to manage Melbourne's um, best livability going forward. <laughs> it, it could be. Robert, Robert, um, Robert Menzies had, um, you probably know this, but had two types of Australians, those that were leaners and those that are lifters. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a, a very unhealthy relationship in Australia between the public and government. We're bloody council, bloody government. There's not a single person in this room that couldn't be involved in government in some way. And yet we all enjoy sitting on the other side and going they're the black knights and they're the problem. I think the best thing that happens in this country is when we go and do it. We make it happen and we get it partly wrong, but you go and do it. And I think the best way, culture is actually a story that you tell over and over again. And what makes our culture strong is when we act and not simply just tell the story, we enact it. So I think my desire or wish over the next 20 or 30 years is that more of us are involved in government. The biggest difference between a politician and a statesperson is a philosophy. And the more people that have philosophy and the ability to enact things that get involved in the decision-making, it's how we change things. We've got another question. Hi, my name's Alan. Um, Rob, I just want to ask you, you talk about um, re-timetabling our city, similar yep. to your university. I've seen you talk about it on YouTube five years ago, and I was pretty excited of how Melvin's <laughs> actually going to embrace that. You know, because I thought that densification doesn't, when you talk about densification, it really excites me because I don't think sure. that um, <coughs> densification is necessarily a bad thing. I don't think it should be come as a form of sacrifice to do good. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you, you, you talk about an example of, you know, um, giving free rights before seven, but that seems to me on a scale of infrastructure, it seems like we have to sacrifice our sleep in order to take advantage of that. Yeah. How can we, you know, it's on the scale of a building, perhaps, it's Melbourne, what some policies being uh, introduced to, to the reappropriation of the building, similar to sure. your university. You know, can we start to see maybe even these um, church, uh, churches in the city, which are only used one or t once or twice a week, being turned into discos <laughs> at night? Yeah. You know? Or even co uh, community schools in the day, uh, on the weekdays, because it's, uh, a lot of times it's a waste of space of these buildings. I think you're absolutely right. And I mean, I give that as an example, the, the free uh, before, you know, 7 o'clock. But there are a lot of other examples. Um, I grew up in Zimbabwe. Uh, at Independence, uh, Robert Mugabe put two uh, 250,000 kids into school. Didn't build a single school. All he did was actually run schools in the morning and the afternoon. There was a really clever idea about how you actually get more out of less. We, we're running a program of actually capturing the water that falls on the city. So rather than actually, we built a lot of big tanks and we now collect 20% of the water that falls on our city. But the, the far more effective way is to actually put down things like permeable asphalt that people can drive on and the water goes through into the soil and soil is a much better place to store water than in a tank. We've, we've looked at programs like taking asphalt out of the city. We've taken 45 hectares out of, a, of asphalt out of the central out of the inner city. We don't talk about it much because big roads get crossed. But <laughs> the, the idea is we're repurposing what is redundant space in the road for pedestrians, parks, etc. Wherever you see a white line down the middle of the road that an engineer has hatched, 
what the engineer is telling you is he doesn't need that space. So dig it up and plant a tree. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you, this is the way, and I'm using very simple examples, but there are thousands and thousands of opportunities of repurposing our city. We design childcare, and people say, well, it's got to be 120 kids to make a childcare economic. Someone came to me with an idea which I thought was brilliant. What if you had 10 children and 10 serviced offices? And so the parents who were actually looking after the 10 kids are all much the same age, worked together in the same place. Maybe the rental of the offices and the childcare would be a better financial formula and it would be a much better interpersonal formula. So that is our challenge. How do we take these cities that are going to double in the next 40 to 50 years? We haven't got the time or money to, cha uh, to build the infrastructure. How do we repurpose the infrastructure we've got? And a simple example is you get much more people in a bus than you do get in a car. So running bus lanes down Hoddle Street, they now carry a third of the people down Hoddle Street in buses that used to be in cars, and on a fraction of the space. What about the scale of a building? I mean, why not? Yeah. yeah. I, th I think it's an interesting one on the building. Uh, you used an example about using a church over different times, and I think... Yeah. Because uh, I like to give this example because I thought that the church has good acoustic um, yep. um, sound qualities in it, and the disco would like to take advantage of it. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, sure. I think it has to be smart. To it's not about you know to go up to no lights, no light crowd. Yeah, <laughs> it's not about utilizing any space that we see, but being smart about it, taking advantage, um, you know, ex in a way exploiting it. Yeah. yeah. What I like about what you're saying is you're starting to think about things in a different way. And part of the trap is we think about our institutions and our building and our infrastructure in the same old way. And we've got to start reimagining it. And when you reimagine it, a whole lot of opportunities open up that actually make the infrastructure far more affordable. Mm. I think we've just about... Oh, I've got another question. One more question, and then we'll take that as the last. Uh, I'm happy to carry on talking, but we have hit the 7.30. Is my name's Elizabeth Owen, and my yeah. question is about identity. I love the word Melburnian because I've always been a Melburnian and always will be, probably. But um, my question is, if we are going to have this decentralisation, which I've heard about many, many times, and it basically sounds as though it's got lots of positives, how do we ensure that we still have a sense of ourselves as a centre, not a physical centre, but people as a centre as Melbourneians. Uh, for example, today I come from Bayside. I drove out to the eastern suburbs, to Borwin, Mont Albert, Box Hill, where I grew up. Then I went to um, a creative writing class in Templestowe, drove a friend who doesn't have a car to Reservoir, came back over to the central city and would go back to Bayside. Now, all those different suburbs have a different feel, and they are all my suburbs in many ways. But I don't know whether everybody feels a lot of my friends in Bayside stick to Bayside. I mean, how do we maintain our sense of ourselves as Melburnians despite the fact we have to restructure? I'll <laughs> have a very quick kick. We're multiple villages in Melbourne, and, and they're all different. Um, and that's what makes them so wonderful. One of the characteristics that we need to keep in our cities is what I call local character. There, there must be five things that make up a good urban environment. A, a good public realm, a space outside of buildings, good connectivity, you can get in and out, density, mixed use, and local character. You get those coming together, then you hit ahead 
you hit things like Fitzroy, which was voted the best suburb in the world a, a few weeks ago. Um, I don't know who actually got it onto that list and why they felt <laughs> it was the best, but we knew what they were talking about because we go to Fitzroy for a particular sort of e experience and we go to you know, other places for a different one. So I agree with you. I think we've got to keep our uniqueness. If we all start looking and feeling the same, nobody will ever want to visit us. And I think that's why Melbourne's so special because we've actually kept our Melbourne feel about us. Unity as well. Surely we have to have difference, vitality, and a sense of unity. Being Melbourneian as well as being Bayside. Yeah, I'm not sure, and I'll throw it over. I'm not sure whether that's a physical or a cerebral thing. I think uh, cerebrally we're part of Melbourne, but well, well, I, I think that um, cities of four million and above or three million above naturally break down into tribal groups, mm. if you like. If you go to Sydney, they'll talk about the northern beaches or the eastern suburbs or lower North Shore, upper North Shore, or way out west. Melbourne has the Bayside, it has the West, it has the North, it has the Inner East, if you like. Uh, Brisbane even has North Side, South Side. So you can actually have natural tribal breakdowns, if you like, uh, in major cities. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily diminish the cohesion uh, of people identifying as Melbournians. The same applies in, say, Los Angeles, Orange County, or the Valley. They're distinct components, but they are subsets within a bigger, prouder, uh, gutsier city. And I think, ultimately, that's the way Melburnians would view it. There's still the G, there's still the CBD, Flinders Street and so forth. That clearly projects across Melbourne, and Melburnians uh, identify with that and our common values. Simon. Uh, I, look, I, something I think is really important is that all the city is welcome to welcomes all people. And I think still there are parts, you know, there are groups of people from different suburbs who don't feel comfortable coming into the city for various reasons. And I think built, uh, that's again about values, I think, and it's about those places being through architecture or sp devising spaces which welcome everybody into the city. Mm. Philip, would you like a... Oh, just, you know, again, having, having lived in quite a few different cities around the world, I... I think our, our big challenge, this idea of identity at a time period, you know, we've got 200 different nationalities living mm. within, within the city environment. Our, our big challenge is to, is to make sure that that diversity continues and that we welcome people in and embrace them. And I think, the, you know, I'll get into controversial topics here, but, you know, I think we've, we've flogged multiculturalism for so long that I think we've got to evolve from a multicultural society into a cosmopolitan one. I think people in this country are being defined by a class system or an ethnic background and they're valued for that ethnic background when in fact what we want them of us all to be is of, of one citizenship and working together. So a, a cosmopolitan Australia I think is the goal, not a multicultural one. And to keep that diversity there, we live in different suburbs because the value systems represent where we are at any point in time and those values shift as suburbs do. The important thing is to understand how important identity is in all of that. Eddie, well you can I have think, the final you know, say. To add to that, it's not just multiculturalism, which I think we do very, very well, actually, having visited a lot of other places. We do multiculturalism remarkably well. But it's also um, gender equality and, you know, um, and uh, different strata of society that we also have to have the same attitude too and then yeah. we will you know we'll continue having a great city which yeah. <laughs> it's amazing we can have one more question yes 
just a bit uncertain as to how this livability, which we all want to have, will tie in with approved towers. <laughs> Good question. Well, I want to use the example of Fisherman's Bend, um, where our current planning minister has approved 47-plus towers, but I don't think that the community has an understanding of how livability will fit in with that, sure. despite the buildings already being approved and how it will fit in with the overall plan for Melbourne. It is, it is one of our big challenges. Um, the, it, it's a debate that we could actually start now and go for another hour and a half on, which is, which is the, 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 the problem. Um, livability is a product of so many things. And uh, to have people close together in a dense city gives them connectivity that they don't get in suburbia or on the fringe. So I, I've got this mixed view at the moment. I actually applaud the fact that we are getting denser. What worries me is will we devalue the asset that is the city if we don't respect the public space that is the street and the privacy that one wants in your apartment? Mm. That's the mix we need to get together. And you can do that through design. But you've got to have an understanding of what makes a good street. And you've got to have an understanding that, you know, when we started Postcode 3000, I remember we fitted a building out opposite the town hall and the designers in the office said, oh, it's got to have three bedrooms. I said, why? New York apartments don't have three bedrooms. They can just be a big space. So we've got to think about the different ways of designing as well. So if we, I think we can get it right. I think we need to, and this is where I go back to the intellect within government, I don't think the minister's going out there to try and destroy the city. I really don't. I, th I think, you know, he, he's driving a whole lot of things that he thinks are very important. But what's got lost in that d debate is the quality of the street environment in 10, 15 years' time when all those towers are built and the quality of the experience within those apartments when they're all looking at each other mm. across, you know, 10 metres. So we need to get those, those simple rules about how you build a city right. And it's a combination between the quality of the public realm and the buildings that actually form the public realm. And is that a lot of those buildings have been approved to be built already. Mm. Whether they'll all get built is, is another question and we'll have to wait and see that. What worries me is when they've been flicked and people have made 36 million on the way through and none of that value has come back to the community. That really worries me. Because that is a very dumb planning system. And you need to go to Vancouver and places like that where, you know, you've got to give back a, a public benefit if you get a benefit from the increased value of your site. Yep. We're missing out on that uplift yep. that is a public gain. Yep. So there's a smarter way of doing it. Yep. I'm, I'm struggling to find a single person in Melbourne that is excited about Fisherman's Bend. Whereas, whereas if we said the entire Fisherman's Bend precinct would be six storeys built on streets and laneways, and courtyards and access to the river, you can start to build a story behind that. And we would have great density there and a, and a great life with it. So I think people confuse density with, with mm -hmm. high-rise towers. I think they're very different discussions. Yep. Barcelona is one of the densest cities yep. in the world, 200 people per hectare, seven stories. Yep. Did you want a final say or are we all done? No, I'm done. We're all done. <laughs> all right. Can I thank you for coming out? Uh, you've been a fantastic audience. And, and would you mind thanking the panel? Ellie, Simon, Patrick.